The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Ravinda Kaur. We talked about her new book, Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Designs in 21st Century India. We talked about how in both India and around the world, ethno-nationalism in alliance with domestic and international capital seeks to rebrand entire nations as attractive investment opportunities. We talked about who and what is left out of the airbrushed picture of the branded nation, why it is that nationalism and capitalist globalisation are not antithetical as was commonly supposed in the 1990s, and we also talked about how India's democratic history and self-portrayal as open and convivial is used to favourably contrast India with China, even in the era of Hindu nationalism. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Capitalism and the Sea, the Maritime Factor in the Making of the Modern World by Liam Campling and Alejandro Colas. The Global Ocean has through the centuries served as a trade route, strategic space, fish bank and supply chain for the modern capitalist economy. While seabeds are drilled for their fossil fuels and minerals, and coastlines developed for real estate and leisure, the oceans continue to absorb the toxic discharges of our carbon civilization. In Capitalism and the Sea, Liam Campling and Alejandro Colas look at how the sea keeps capitalism afloat. Visit versobooks.com for more information. And now to today's interview. Ravinder Kaur is Associate Professor of Modern South Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. She is the author of Since 1947, Partition Narratives Among the Punjabi Migrants of Delhi. Her latest book, which was the topic of our conversation, is Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Designs in 21st Century India, which is out now from Stanford University Press. So before we go into the book in detail, could you just tell me a bit about how you first conceived of it and and why the topic of the branding of nations was one that you felt was important to investigate? I would say I think this this took me many years and I did not actually begin with branding at all. I stumbled upon it on the way. I begin with, uh, you know, sometimes in 2006, a long time ago, when India was celebrating its 60th anniversary. And at that time, you could notice that there was a whole new discourse about India which was shaping up, and especially in the foreign press. And uh, there were comparisons being made between India and Pakistan, that Pakistan has been rendered into a frontline state against, you know, in the war against terrorism, whereas India has become this new emerging market. So I got totally fascinated by that. And at the same time, this new imagery of India was being produced. So I begin with those images and which led me eventually to this whole, you know, governmental operation of rebranding India into an investment destination. 
And if we think about the the earlier period, so obviously during the Cold War, India had been the leader of the non-aligned movement and, and a leading force in what was then termed the third world. And you described the embrace of, of liberal economic reforms in the 1990s as a kind of repudiation of this history. What do you think it was about that history that India's political class was so keen to leave behind or, or forget? I think perhaps tremendously important is the entire trust of the anti-colonial movement, you know, independence movement, in which economic independence played a large role. So without going in back into the 19th century history of economic independence or the, or the wish to do that, already early on after the independence, India joined the non-aligned movement or, or the grouping of the Third World Nations, where the desire to gain true sovereignty was what, what drove many nations across Asia, Africa and Latin America to become economically independent. And the idea was that it is not just political sovereignty which matters, Equally, what matters is economic sovereignty, uh, which basically means having control over national resources or having the power to decide one's own destiny of what to produce and what to consume. So this came to be known roughly as the new international economic order. And India was one of the leading actors in this. And many of the policies in post-colonial India was driven by this idea that we need to create institutions, industry, which will support India as this alternative, you know, non-aligned and independent nation. And so what was the reason that it was felt necessary to give up on that history, which did have a certain kind of international prestige at the time? Yes. So I think immediately what drove India to do this was what is known as the balance of payment crisis, which happened in 1990 summer. And which basically meant that India had uh, nearly two months of oil payments to run its economy. And that created an immediate crisis, which was leveraged by financial institutions to give a loan to India and in return ask for structural adjustments. While discussions had been taking place for many years, whether India should go that path of liberalization like many other countries were doing, but there had been strong resistance both from the socialist groups as well as the Hindu nationalist groups, which held on to the philosophy of Swadeshi, which basically means of your own nation, Swadeshi, and which was actually straight linking to the anti-colonial struggle. Now, all of this was upended in early 1990s, where it became a question of, like, it was an emergency that you had to do it. So this is, this is the origin of the economic reforms. It began in a small way, but eventually it continued. There was immense pressure to continue doing more and more reforms. And actually, that kind of relentless push has never stopped. Like each government continues to be doing even more reforms. So I think what you can see is the contrast between 19th century, 20th century anti-colonial movement and that turnabout where India no longer was a member of uh, or uh, a leading star of the non-aligned movement. And the present day situation is this, that India has actually more and more gotten aligned with USA. So I think the whole shift is pretty dramatic. And so thinking about that period of the 90s and then into the early 2000s and, and the high point of globalisation, it was commonplace around that time to talk about the declining relevance of nations and of the nation state and to see the nation and, and capitalist 
globalization as in some way antithetical. Was that story about the decline of the nation state always untrue? And if there was some truth to it, how did we wind up in the current situation where we see a revival of, of ethno-nationalism in the form of the Bhatia Janta Party in India, coupled with that fierce commitment to maintaining a neoliberal policy agenda? Well, I think this is when you think about it, it's a pretty bizarre story because many of us grew up or my university life began with this moment, which is called globalization. And most of us were schooled in thinking about the world where nation states no longer have any meaning and the language of liberalization of movement, of flows, of connections, that became the way one started thinking about the world. But yet what I'm showing in my book is that uh, nation state had actually never gone away anywhere. Because precisely the moment that we were talking about the demise of the whole apparatus of the nation state, it was actually the nation state was being reinvented altogether. And this time in complete alignment with global capitalism. So what I'm presenting as the brand new nation is basically this commodified form of the nation state where you're no longer thinking, for example, of made in India products, but rather make in India, which basically means you begin imagining that entire nation state as a space of exchange of production and consumption and which shows basically, you know, also in the language that we use to describe the population or the territory as untapped resources or as, you know, human capital or demographic dividend, each of which must continue to generate more and more growth. So what is the bizarre thing is that all along that everyone was telling us that nation state does not mean anything, the nation state was completely being capitalized into an income generating asset. So I think this is this is the mystery which I came upon, which was surprising that already, for example, in the 1990s reforms, at that time, policies were undertaken, which was not just about selling off uh, public companies or creating more privatization, but it was also about creating a particular image of India as an investment destination. So immense investments were made on that front. And I think all this sort of got overlooked because there was some sort of euphoria at the time. And I'm, I must say that uh, it has uh, shaped also a lot of political theory, which, uh, you know, this whole literature on globalization, which continues to talk about the world in motion. And in terms of that shift to India being branded as this investment destination. What's the role of what you describe the investor citizen and, and how the public is interpolated in this change? I think one thing I would want to emphasize is that many of the things we are discussing, they usually are thought about in terms of broader international politics as something where the nation is being leveraged you know, in the broader global economy. But I think one part which I'm showing in my book also is that how it completely reconfigures, rearranges the nation itself. And the whole notion that you mentioned about investor citizen is pretty important because some of the campaigns that I'm mentioning, uh, publicity campaigns in my book, were actually meant for the Indian citizens to tell them that, look, we have sort of arrived in the world. You too must relish this moment you must become investors too, and you can also gain something out of it. So this campaign launched in 2003-04 was called India Shining, 
And it was primarily meant for, you know, the so-called new Indian middle class, which was taking shape at the time, where intense publicity was all about that now we are part of a globe, you know, this global world, where we too can travel, we too can consume just like everybody else in the world. So I think that moment, that shift which takes place is about, you know, the whole compact that one citizens have with the nation state undergoes some sort of change. And which is, it becomes about that, look, here I am investing something in the nation. And what is my return? What, what is it that I'm going to get out of it? So I think this very transactional nature, and, and, and the reason I'm emphasizing this is that uh, the relationship between the nation state and citizens has always been thought in terms of love, devotion, sacrifice. But here we see the whole economic argument which is being implemented, and that has a fundamental shift also and preparing the political landscape which eventually allows Narendra Modi's government with the promise of good time to actually capture politics in such a dominant way in India. Is there also certain quite concrete economic goals here in terms of perhaps trying to increase domestic consumption, which is seen perhaps as a way for India to get out of the middle income trap and, and really sort of rise into the top tier of the most economically advanced nations? I think it's both internal and external because India, as you know, is soon going to be the largest, uh, most populous nation in the world. And the immense debate has been that how big is the Indian middle class, that how large is the consumer base in India. And uh, the India Shining campaign, which I mentioned, was primarily directed towards the Indian middle class to say, look, that uh, you need to invest. And the underlying logic was that a lot of middle class Indians buy gold jewelry and store it at home as a status symbol. And it is in a way dead capital that you need to put it back in the economy to regenerate more income. So a lot of people basically were being asked to relish this moment and become investors in their own nation. And at the same time, the size of the middle class also became something that you can bargain with investors in the global economy. So when one says that, um, you know, we have potential 100 million consumers for a given product, for, for example, then that becomes something that you can leverage in order to bring investments to. So for India, or for a country the size of India, anything that you do somehow becomes the largest or, you know, the biggest in the world. So I think this also, it is both selling the Indian economy, the size, the consumer base to the domestic audience and at the same time to foreign investors. On that external side of it, and, and regarding the India Shining campaign, so you write about an early image used in the campaign that sought to attract investors to the country. And very strikingly, the image used was, was not of India or, or a figure from India's present or India's history, but rather of Christopher Columbus arriving in the Americas. So can you talk a bit about why that image was selected and, and what that aspect of the campaign was trying to do? I think the figure of Columbus is, uh, you know, universally known as, you know, this, this man who was an explorer, 
who found, you know, the great riches. I mean, he went out to find the Indies and he never found. And I think the whole point of bringing, and this very cheekily, you know, so there is some humor in it that uh, last time Columbus, when he set out to discover India, he instead discovered America. So I think the whole point that to invoke America, the world's largest economy, to say that, look, this is only half the story. If only Columbus had actually made it to India imagine then what and by asking this question then what now you are extending the invitation to global captains of industry to come this way that you know that whole poetry of economy i mean the weather is good please sail this way and you don't even risk getting lost because this time we will navigate you safely to the shores of india so i think in a way this ad captures the ways in which india publicity or india was imagined by the nation branders which was a bit you know cheeky way of thinking about world history world economy and placing india as this commodity which people simply could not afford to overlook anymore because obviously you, you talk to people involved in in these campaigns i mean regarding that image in particular do you think there was any discomfort about using such a key figure in in the history of colonialism as part of an advertising campaign regarding india which of course had, had experienced british imperialism did you feel that there was any discomfort there at all or or that it was entirely considered appropriate and fine to in some ways accept this slightly subordinate role you're totally right i mean i was when i saw that image the first time i was stunned that uh, you know this image was being used and in my book i describe the origin of this particular painting from which this ad is based on but i must say that uh, all those aspects of history or the role of columbus or the discovery or you know this whole debate that does not figure in because columbus here is simply positioned as an explorer and investor the one who is going out to fetch commodity uh, new commodities and that part of the story is what is being leveraged here to draw attention to india so i think all those uncomfortable questions that you're mentioning i don't think so they appear in this thinking at all Regarding some of the other images that were used in the campaign, could you talk a bit about those and what story they try to tell about India and the, and the way the country is presented and also what is left out or obscured or, or hidden in those images? I think one thing one must mention is that India has always been extremely attentive to the image of itself that is seen in the world and this has much to do with the colonial history writing where india is portrayed in a particular kind of way and a uh, lot of effort has been made to overcome that image i mean a lot of elite indians of course they get very uncomfortable with seeing images of poverty of deprivation of any kind so i think here this was a chance in a way to recreate india's image the way one wants to see oneself so i was thinking more that it is almost as if india was taking its own selfie you know and uh, what do you see in the mirror what do you want to see and what do you want to show to the world and when i say india we are actually referring to the elite indians who mostly inhabit the space of policy making and that includes the designers the politicians all this group of people and what you see in these in this new form of imagery is that uh, or as one of the designers told me that uh, you know that you want to see india as a confident 
nation, one that can also crack jokes at itself. So which is why many of these imagery, they seem a little bit cheeky in how to present themselves. And uh, the idea that India is a global place and it can, that it has its own ancient history, but it is very much at home in the global world. So, for example, you see one image of a woman who could easily be in, you know, a Los Angeles some um, fitness place. And there she is in her Lycra body outfit and she's doing yoga. And I think all of a sudden this notion and I think I'm mentioning this image because this was mentioned to me repeatedly as an example of how India should be, how India ought to be in the world where you retain somehow your ancient essence and peace. All of this is debatable, including the history of yoga and everything, which we need not go into. But to say that this notion that there is something inherently essential about India, which can be repackaged in a global frame and sold to the world. So I think this is the broader frame. And I think what I'm also trying to mention is that many times this kind of imagery is simply dismissed as propaganda, something not worthwhile looking into. Because it is, it is, after all, government agencies which are producing it. So what I'm trying to suggest also is that uh, this is a rich archive, basically, into how elite India wants to refashion the nation and what, what is the image that, he, that it wants to refashion into. And what you witness is everything which is left out of the image. And in that, that visual frame, for example, you would not see too many minority figures. You would not see any hint of, like, let me quote one of the designers who said that, look, we are basically cleaning up the image. And he was actually using the, you know, this whole photographic language, you know, language of photography, where Photoshop enables you to clean up, you know, the dust or anything which somehow is disfiguring the image. But when you translate that into the social political landscape, you know, that same notion of photoshopping, what you can see is that there is this very de-resonated, very clean kind of imagery where everything which is seen as problematic has been airbrushed, you know? So I think this is how one can use this as a very rich archive, not just to see what is in it, but also to note what is consistently left out. So this is basically visual framing of the nation in the 21st century. That notion of airbrushing and, and cleaning up, do you think there's an even more sinister connotations there in terms of the ethno-nationalism of, of the Bharti Janta Party and, and state-sanctioned pogroms and, and all this kind of thing? I think if one were to speak to the designers who create this imagery, they would not immediately recognise this interpretation but when we talk about it, they actually begin acknowledging it. At least one of the designers, when he was met with critique, massive critique, for, for example, there is an ad, there's a video which uh, speaks about two Indias, which is actually recited by, you know, the famous, well-known Bollywood superstar Amitabh Bachchan. And uh, it was released in 2006 to say that, look, India has all the potential, but it is being held back by the other India. Now, the people who created this, they were doing it with some notion of nationalist, you know, this patriotic feeling that we want to further India, take it ahead. But when told that, look, there is deep problem, the half the India is seen as a baggage which is holding back the nation. 
So you could also hear, and I have been interviewing all these people, that there is a lot of, uh, uh, you know, deep felt reflection that uh, maybe there is a there is a problem. So I think uh, you're right, but I'm just saying that sometimes it is not totally thought through. But the very subtle ideas which are already there, they continue to appear unwittingly in this imagery. So cleaning up, airbrushing in the Photoshop mode, of course, also had to, has to do with the deep discomfort of the state of India, where you, you are not able to recreate you know, I mean, we do have problems, you know, with communal violence. We do have problems with, uh, you know, caste atrocities, poverty, deprivation. And that cleaning up, and this is what a lot of policymakers would love to do, you know, they can only do that in the image world. Could you talk a little bit more about the role of, you talk about a romanticized pre-Islamic Hindu civilizational culture, which forms the core of a lot of this rebranding. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, so I think one thing which I began noticing that uh, of the hundreds of images which have been produced of India the past years, what is noticeable is how few, like the absence basically, or near absence of minority figures. But I must also draw a distinction here that uh, during the Congress regime, you do actually find some Muslim imagery. And uh, the way it would be, presented is, for example, the image of an entrepreneur who becomes visibly Muslim, you know, with a, with a cap, with a prayer cap, etc. But he's presented as an entrepreneur. And the obvious conclusion one can make is that, well, there is a place for minorities. If only they rediscover or activate their neoliberal, entrepreneurial, innovative qualities. Right. So there is space for you if you become an income generating citizen of India. Another image which is noticeable is the image of Taj Mahal. As everyone knows, there are huge controversies after in 1992 when Babri Masjid, the mosque was demolished, you know, by the Hindu activist. Then continuously, they have also spoken of other Muslim monuments, which includes Taj Mahal, which is sometimes seen as also a ploy by Muslim rulers. There's some conspiracy theories say that there is a temple underneath. So from time to time, you hear that, uh, uh, you know, one should rename Taj Mahal or dig it up somehow or somehow destroy it. But the reason that Taj Mahal continues to exist surprisingly here is because of its income generating quality. Like if you look at the tourist brochures, to think about India without thinking of Taj Mahal is almost impossible. And half the tourist earnings are earned from Taj Mahal. So in a way, if you look at this India, incredible India imagery, Taj Mahal appears, but the very frame of appearance is neoliberal the economic argument that uh, here it is the most visited or basically the most profitable monument. So what I'm trying to say is that, yes, surprisingly, minority figures or minority symbolism can appear in these images. And it is very little to begin with. But if it does, then it has an economic argument attached to it. Just on the point on the, on the Taj Mahal, do you think, thinking about it on the external side and regarding tourists, is it even recognised as being part of India's Islamic culture? Because I think perhaps it's just generally seen as this iconic symbol of India rather than having any religious affiliations necessarily. Yeah, but I think the internal discourse in India in the last uh, 30 years or so has become such that 
everything is being sifted through the lens of Hindu nationalism, which means that, uh, you know, Taj Mahal, which most people had never thought about as anything more than as a symbol of love story, has become also a matter of contention, just like many other monuments have. So you would see that, uh, you know, sometimes you get, um, I don't know how much you know that in India, WhatsApp has become a medium of generating lots of fake news and propaganda. So you would, from time to time, you receive you know, those mail, you know, those chain messages which say that, look, please don't visit Taj Mahal. You should start visiting uh, Hindu monuments. So actually, there is an active campaign to say that we need to. It is being re-established or re-recognized as a Muslim monument. So I think which has much to do with the fact that everything is being, you know, India is in a great churning and precisely on this, the social landscape is being reconfigured. Just going back to the earlier point you made about the images and, and how the cheekiness and, and uh, irreverence of those images, how much of that is to do with positioning India versus China and, and trying to make an asset of India's supposedly comparative conviviality and, and light-heartedness and also the extent to which India as a democracy is an asset in the branding operation? Well, yes, absolutely. And I think if we go back to the turn of the millennium, when, uh, you know, this whole discourse of the Asian century was quite high, India and China were seen as, you know, the motor, the engine of soon the world economy. And uh, China was seen as authoritarian and India as democratic alternative to it. So a lot of India's positioning in the world had much to do with its uh, democratic credentials. And actually, one of the first slogans that they created was world's largest free market democracy, which was essentially devised in Davos at the World Economic Forum when China was talk of the town and the Indian policymakers. They could see that, well, there is nothing much to compete with China. I mean, in size and shape, there are many similarities. But what stands out for India is precisely its democratic potential. And that actually has become, that became a slogan which has been used since that time, from 2006 onwards. It was actually quite a large campaign. Uh, It was called India Everywhere, where global investors were particularly approached or, uh, you know, like where India is publicized as the place where you could make profit But you could also do safely in the knowledge that you're doing it in a liberal democratic setup. So I think that that kind of differentiation with China, even though it wasn't spoken that aloud, because at the same time, you also want to keep good relations with China. But but this has underpinned the campaign all along. On the India Shining campaign, so it's commonly described as being a failure. It was quickly subverted. The images were mocked and the unrepresentativeness of of those images was talked about widely. Could you talk about the apparent failure of the campaign and also your analysis of it, which complicates that picture a little bit? Yes, so India Shining campaign, when it was publicised, basically it led to the fall of the government, BJP government, and Congress government came into power and which ruled for the next 10 years. So many analysts at that point said that uh, the BJP government has lost because it had oversold its uh, achievements in the shape of India Shining. And uh, as we have discussed many of this imagery, which was all about that look, relish this moment, enjoy it because you have arrived in the world. You know, it was that kind of euphoric message. 
So the idea was that, look, they have lost because they have oversold because there is still poverty and deprivation in India. Now, when you, you know, the argument that I'm making is that India, India shining campaign may have been a failure in terms of, you know, electoral loss that it caused to the BJP government. But in terms of the new liberal economic agenda, it was actually quite a success. And this kind of argument could not have been made immediately, but only several years down the line. But already at that time, you could see that uh, the counter campaign launched by the Congress government was in Hindi, it was called Aam Admi Ko Kya Mila, or what did the common man get out of it? So when you look at it, this whole slogan was reminding people that, well, well, India may be shining, but it's shining for some. What did you get out of it? Or should we not ask for our share. So what I'm trying to say is that, look, already then the argument of, you know, the relationship between citizens and the nation state of investors and investors who seek some profit out of their relationship, their investment, right? That had already started taking root. And so that's one point. And do recall that Congress won handsomely in that um, campaign. Now, 10 years down the line, we see that Narendra Modi comes to power, but this time the whole, you know, India shining campaign is repackaged as good time, Ache Din. And in a way, you can see that here, each successive government term, the push has been that, look, India has to make more reforms. And that, you know, increasingly, you know, journalists or policymakers, they demand and they push towards that we need a second range of reforms, right? Which means, you know, more deeper, like emptying out somehow or opening up the entire state infrastructure. So I think that argument has taken root so deeply in India and that cuts across so many party political lines that, uh, you know, consider, for example, the state of West Bengal, which has been the the center of uh, communist politics in India. Even that at some point started talking about investments and having its own brand campaign called uh, Business for Bengal or Bengal for Business, which tried to repeat this entire story of investments, right? So what I'm trying to say is that thus far, that entire logic that India has to continue reforming has taken pretty deep roots. But of course, right now, as you know, there are farmers' protests going on. It's only now that we see that there is some sort of rethinking going on. And it may, of course, lead to something else. It, this may be a turning point. And so that rethinking that you described, then that would go beyond the position associated with Congress in opposition to the India Shining campaign, where the opposition is simply about distributional questions, but actually looking to question the entirety of neoliberal logic in, in your mind. No, but like Congress was the original party of reforms, because at that time, BJP was against the reforms because they had a very strong you know, subgroup called uh, Swadeshi Jagran Manch, which spoke about Swadeshi. And it is still active, but uh, it was eventually marginalized. And uh, that group has been completely marginalized under Modi. So BJP has come to power or become such a dominant force in uh, Indian politics, primarily because they have combined the, you know, ethno-nationalist tendencies together with, you know, this relentless capitalist reforms. 
And that change begins from sometimes, you know, when we're describing the India shining moment, which is 2003-04. And that has become such an obvious thing that Congress actually, and I must also mention that Congress at some point realized that reforms and full reforms in itself could not do much. So Prime Minister Manmohan Singh at that time began speaking about his notion of capitalism with a human face. Now, we don't hear of that anymore. But that was, I take that kind of thinking basically as a reconsideration where the policymakers begin realizing that uh, relentless reforms may not be enough, that India, if it was ever going to have this kind of, uh, you know, distributive, you know, some sort of equalizing effect, then they need to do something more. And at that time, they begin, for example, you know, making some of these very landmark changes, like right to food, right to work, and uh, bringing people like Jean Dres or uh, Amartya Sen or many, you know, many social activists on board uh, on uh, policy planning as well. So I think that what you could see is that the Congress regime even though it was the party of reforms, that it begins having some sort of rethinking that we need to reconsider our strategy. But when Modi government comes to power, that comes to power purely on the back of this reforms agenda, that there is no alternative but reforms to push forth. And is your sense that there's not much internal conflict within the BJP about the reform agenda at this point? Because obviously, historically, they've been very ambivalent about market reforms. No longer. Because they have sort of like those people still, you know, they are there in the party structure, but they are not dominant voices anymore. So I think one of the founders of Swadeshi Jagran Manch, he's still part of the policy, some of the policy organs. And actually, for example, the demonetization scheme is actually put down to some of these thinkers who actually do not understand fully the implications. So it's basically like a quick fix solutions to how to remove corruptions or so some, somehow they have been incorporated in the party structure, but they do not have any dominant role in this anymore. And could you say something on the demonetization campaign, which won't be familiar to everybody? So demonetization was that overnight, uh, you know, on November 8th, 2016, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, he announced a TV address at eight o'clock and said that from midnight onwards, the high currency notes are no longer valid. And that included 1000 rupees note and 500 rupees note. And uh, with that action, nearly in Indian economy, 85% of the cash was sort of nullified in one single stroke. And uh, that caused a very strange kind of situation, which continued for several months, actually, where people were asked to come and deposit their old notes and uh, get reissued new notes. And this is something, um, it was sold to the public as an anti-corruption measure, which will eradicate all ills in the society at one stroke. And the idea was that uh, corruption basically takes place in cash. You know, cash cannot be trailed. So, you know, more and more things need to be happening on digital front. So at the same time, Digital India program was given a push and a lot of digital payment, you know, options became popular. But as everyone knows that people who do real corruption, like big time corruption, they don't sit with sacks of cash. I mean, that's a very, that is something which used to happen in 1960s Bollywood movies, you know, where somebody's walking around with a suitcase 
filled with cash. Because when you go to, you know, tax havens or dodge taxes or buy property, you don't do it in cash. But nevertheless, it was possible to sell this argument to the larger public to say that, look, it may be inconvenience for you, but you're standing here in the queue. But, um, you know, but um, you're doing it for the larger good of the nation because this will eradicate uh, corruption plus terrorism because that Pakistan uses counterfeit notes. But digital stuff, they will not be able to do. So I think with this kind of logic, and please remember, BJP is the richest party in India, which basically means that it has enormous resources to pull through any kind of argument that they want to deliver to the public. And surprisingly, I think the whole world was shocked to see millions of people out in queues trying to exchange their notes. And as you know, a lot of deaths took place because a lot of people were simply not able to undergo this kind of hardship. But nevertheless, this became a moment where I think Indian economy went on a downslide from which it has never recovered. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.